Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's, this is the word of the Lord. Last week, uh, Pastor Rob, he introduced um, this whole new sermon series that we'll go through over the summer, and uh, it's the songs of our lives, the psalms, and so we'll take select psalms over the next couple of months, and uh, we'll be able to see uh, how praiseworthy God really is in our lives, in every aspect. So today will be uh, just the first psalm that we'll kind of delve into. Uh, They're not in any particular order, necessarily. As we read from Psalm 127. So, you know, uh, especially this past week, I don't know if it was especially this past week or lately, I feel like my kids wonder, and my wife asked me, you know, why do you work so hard? Sounds kind of funny. It's like, what do you mean? Like, you know, the things that are worth doing. That are, if we want to accomplish something great, like you've got to work hard. It takes time, it takes effort. We've got to work hard. I think the real question that's being asked here is what drives us? What drives you to work so hard? What happens when we try to work so hard? Have you ever felt anxious like me over the results not matching your expectations? Not sure what good will come out of your efforts? Wonder, is what I'm doing and what I've achieved so far, is it enough? Another way to ask this is this, how do you you sleep at night? Does this stuff keep you up at night? I know it does for me. Long ago, the people of God, the Israelites, they also wondered these things. The Israelites long ago worried and wondered, what will come of my hard work? And they brought these worries along as they worshipped God. If you look at the title of the psalm, Psalm 127, if you look in your Bibles, there's a little subscript, there's a little note, and it'll be up on the screen. It says, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. So that already tells us a couple of things. One, Solomon is the one who wrote this psalm, King Solomon, and it's a song of ascents. A song of ascents, what that is, is uh, there's a list of 15 psalms in the Bible, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. 
And the Psalm of Ascents, there were these songs that the, the Israelites sang as they would literally ascend up the hill. Okay, so you can't imagine this. They're, they're literally ascending up the hill. After a long year, a season of harvesting and plowing and sowing and doing commerce and trade and work, during these holy festivals throughout the year, they would actually ascend together up the hill on Jerusalem towards the temple. And as they're ascending up the hill to meet with God and worship him at the temple, they would sing these songs to kind of prepare their hearts for worship. So that's what a song of ascent is. And so imagine with me, like, here's a people, they're ascending up the hill, they're singing this song after a long season of just working hard and sowing and reaping, building a home, raising children, and as they ascend, they sing this song. And they're declaring that the success of building a house, of building a city, securing a city, is dependent on God. So since this is a song that the people of God sang, and it's short enough, why don't we read this together? Can we read this all together? Let me be up on the screen. Verse 1. Let's just read verse 1 all together, starting from unless. Uh, let's go ahead and read that. Ready? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So that's the mentality. They're singing this to each other. It's like, remember, remember, it's not just up to us. Unless the Lord builds it, those who build it labor in vain. Now this, the word house, the house, it can mean a couple of different things here. One, it means literally a house and a home that we live in. The house and home that we build and live in. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm not a homeowner yet. It seems like kind of seemingly out of reach for our family. It's like, I don't think we could own a home anytime soon. It, it's, it costs a lot, especially recently. Maybe like years ago, it was a little more affordable. Right now? Oh my goodness. Right? I don't know if anyone has been recently looking for homes to buy or, or to sell or just to kind of redo, or, but just even the upkeep if you own a home. Oh my goodness. Right? I've been used to renting, and when I kind of explore the cost of owning your own, oh my goodness, there's so much. There's so much. There's a lot of labor that goes into building and keeping your house. It just makes me anxious thinking about it. Well, specifically, uh, in this context, it probably also meant, since Solomon wrote it, remember, he was tasked to build a temple of God. The house of the Lord. And so also this means that as, as unless, unless the Lord is building your home, it also means unless the Lord is building the house of worship, the congregation, your foundation of worship, unless the Lord is behind it, unless the Lord is giving you the grace and providing the means for us to actually come to him and worship, then that also is in vain. That speaks to our church life, our congregation, Unless the Lord is behind this, us gathering together, the efforts, the worries, the anxious thoughts that go into keeping this community, it all is also in vain. 
It is in the Lord's hands. Our church, we are in the Lord's hands. If you look at that word city, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The city, what is that? That's a place where we're concerned about the economy, about safety, about security, where we work, make our livelihood. So unless the Lord watches over that, over the city, it is in vain. And we can know this, that God does watch over the city. It is also dependent on him. In other words, prosperity, success, and security depend on God. But we also have a part to play in this. Right? It's not just, well, I'll just leave it up to God. I guess I don't have to worry about anything. It's like, no, actually, we also have a part. We're still called to do good works with diligence. And as much as our efforts, our posture and our attitude also matter as well. So can we, can we read this about our attitude in, in verse 2? Let's continue reading this psalm, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For God gives to his beloved sleep. I love how this worded, the bread of anxious toil. So literally, the, the, the way this is worded in kind of the original language, it's, it's kind of repeated. It's in vain that you rise up early. It's in vain that you go late to rest. It's in vain that you eat the bread of anxious toil. Does anyone already feel that way? <laughs> early to rise, late to rest, always toiling and working. The bread of anxious toil, the reason why it's kind of worded like that is toil. When we see that word toil, we think just labor and hard work. Now, throughout Scripture, we see that diligent hard work is needed and it's good. It is a virtue. God calls us to work diligently and hard. That's a good thing. But in this context, what toil actually means is that strenuous labor, the painful, exhausting labor and this word is always used in a negative way. It's not like, gotta toil hard. It's like, oh, the, the toil, you know? Have you ever gone to your coworkers or just gone home and just like, you might not use this word, but it's the toil, right? You have no idea. It's like, you toil too? Let me, wait until you hear about my toil, right? And it's just this image of eating this, the bread of anxious toil. There's a difference, I think, between working hard and diligently and then being anxious, anxiously toiling. Just, ugh, right? Just anxiously toiling. Have you ever just like worked so hard, not just work hard, but just been anxious about the work and all these questions and just feeling insecure about like if it matters that even like the food you eat, no matter how much you love food, it's just like anxious eating. It's just anxious toil. It's just the bread of anxious toil. All right. It is a relentless work from sunup to sundown. Relentless. You know how it's relentless? If you have friends or found nearby and they poke you, it's like, they ask you, it's like, why do you work? Why are you like that? Why do you work so hard? <laughs> I think you need to relax. Don't tell me to relax. And that's how you know 
We're eating from the bread of anxious toil. It is a relentless toil, and this kind of anxious toil, it proves deceptive and it's useless. So even the results of working hard will be unsuccessful when done in anxiety. Here at the beginning of this psalm, the first half that we just read and sang is we're reminded that all that we have, all that we've been working so hard for, the very city that we live in, our homes, our families, the main things that occupy our minds day in and day out, they're not just up to us and our own efforts, but they're in the Lord's hands. They're in the Lord's hands. See, it's easy to assume, isn't it? And whatever work that you're, we're, we're doing, either paid or unpaid, it's easy to assume that, you know what? I'm on my own, and it's all up to me. Have you ever felt like that? Right? It's like, oh, man, I've got to get this done. It's, it's, it's up to me. I've got to do it. If I don't do it, then it's going to make or break this. And it's just, we pile it on ourselves. And on one hand, it can be like maybe a good self-reliance, like we kind of want to have some measure of that. But that could easily, when done anxiously, when just done in a way that's just completely dependent on ourselves, it leads to arrogance. It leads to frantically trying to secure more and more for ourselves, even when probably there's enough. We look to our left and right. It's hard not to compare, to keep up. And that kind of mindset, it causes great anxiety, doesn't it? When we really think and believe, it's up to me. Because we really know, I think we really know deep down inside that we don't have as much control over the outcomes of our hard work as we would hope. The truth that we're reminded here is that our successes in every aspect of life depends on the Lord. It is God who builds the foundations of a home. It is God who provides the means to do so. It is God who secures his people. It is God who keeps watch over us. He keeps us. It is God who establishes the work of our hands. Look what Moses wrote in another psalm, Psalm 90. He says this, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Meaning, it's really God's grace. And we need his favor. We're dependent on him. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. Meaning, God, I'm going to work hard, but really I'm, depend- I'm looking to you to make the work of my hands actually matter, make an impact, make a difference. I don't know about you, but there have been nights, there have been days where I kind of go to sleep at night, and it's like, I'm not sure if what I just did matters. Right? How will it make a difference? Sometimes I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this too, sometimes I kind of waste my time working on some things, and in the end it's like, why did I work on that? No one's going to see this. (laughs) It's like, maybe it won't really matter. And it's this cry to God. Even Moses says, it's like, man, he's praying. Lord, we look to you. We're looking for your favor. It's really going to be by your grace. And won't you establish the work of our hands? Because in the end, I can't control the outcome. I could put in that effort, but I can't control 
and determine and guarantee that outcome. So, Lord, I trust in you. So when we do wonder, is this hard work really making a difference? Could I have done more? And we're just eating away at the bread of anxious toil. The good news is this, that instead of eating the bread of anxious toil, the Lord, through Jesus, invites us to take more of a true heavenly bread. Remember Jesus, he says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Lord is pointing to himself like there is something greater than this bread of anxious toil. There's a heavenly bread that, that you have to look, you must look to the Lord. And this heavenly bread is not by our own imagination. It's not by our own effort, but this bread is a gift from the Lord for our good. The God who loves you perfectly is in complete charge of history. I love that line. Did you see that? It says, God gives to his beloved sleep. It's like when we're working so hard, waking up early and the first thing that's on your mind is like, what do I have to do for the day? I'm kind of anxious. I'm kind of already worried. And then you're going late to rest and eating that bread of anxious toil. Remember, because God gives to his beloved sleep. We can rest knowing that the God who's in complete charge of all history calls you his beloved. And you can rest now, guilt-free, knowing that the one who is in charge loves you completely and keeps you secure. Can you turn to someone around you and say, you can rest now? Right? Just turn to the neighbor next to you and just remind each other, you can rest now. You know, there's actually, depending on the translation, uh, another way to look at that last uh, bit, God gives to his beloved sleep is, God gives even as his beloved sleep. So even while we're completely knocked out, unconscious, unable to do anything, contributing nothing at all, because we're just out. No more productivity. And even when you're asleep, God continues and is faithful to give to his beloved. Either way you translate it, I think the heart is the same. We can trust in our Lord. We can rest in him. And I think that's the main point of this psalm is found in this verse 2. The main point of this psalm is this, that God is the one. God keeps you, and he keeps you secure. That's not something we frantically have to try to do on our own. It's not just up to us, but it is God who keeps you secure so you can rest and trust in him. Now, I think there's a practical reason why many of us work so hard to build the city, to build a home, to build up society at our jobs. And it's what? It's for our families. For the ones we love. God keeps you secure and God keeps your family secure as well. So can we read this verse 3 together um, about our families? Okay, let's read verse 3. Behold, 
Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. See, children are from the Lord. This word heritage that we see, heritage, in the biblical language, this heritage also kind of inheritance. It typically, when it's used in the Bible, it refers to the land. Remember the promised land of Canaan that the Lord promised to the nation of Israel. So the idea is, although the land belongs to God, he apportions it to his people. He gives it out and he appoints it to his people so that their future is secure. So in the same way, the children are a heritage from the Lord, from the Lord, right? The Lord is giving the children to the parent, to the family, apportioning it out, the children, thereby securing their future. And that's the idea. So reminded that our children are a gift from God. Our children belong to the Lord. They're a reward, a precious treasure. Our children are, are, are they're not a mistake. Oh, we didn't plan for it doesn't matter. It's from the Lord. The children are not just a burden. Our children, children are not just an expense. Right? As parents, as young parents of, 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 ki- of kids, usually we kind of get the, the, you know, the half-joking questions, are you guys done yet? And then usually it kind of devolves into, I don't know if you've ever, I'm guilty of saying this to you, it's like, yeah, but you know, kids are so expensive. No? Just me? All right, cool. But our kids are not just an expense. I think we know that, but that's not our belief. But I think that's, that's more of our anxiety speaking. Does it make sense? It's like, oh, I don't know if I could provide enough. Our kids are not objects to be controlled to our liking. Our children are from God, which implies that, remember, our children are created in God's image. Not our image, not your image. God's image. They might look like you. They might act like you. Pick up your habits. But they're made in God's image. You need to remember that. So as as these pilgrims are kind of walking up, they're preparing to worship God. Just imagine, just after a long, hard season, a long, hard, at the end of a school year, and now it's summer, and there's, now there's camps to worry about, and all the, the schedule is different now, and it's like, it's just walking up this hill, and you're like, my children are from you, God. It's not about me and what I can do and control or not do, but Lord, they're from you. They're a reward, a precious heritage. And what we see is that not only are parents to receive children as gifts from the Lord and raise them according to his ways, but children also benefit the family. Children are how God keeps you secure. So let's read this last two verses together, uh, just of Psalm 127, verse 4 and 5. Ready? Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We see an image here of children being compared to arrows. So the arrows in the hands of a warrior, right? You see these words? And so it's like, 
images like, all right, that's a defensive tool of warfare. It's like, how are children like arrows? You know, like my kids have sharp nails and they'll like claw at me and I know that's when I have to cut their nails. But like, how are they arrows? Like, what does that, what does that mean? And I think in verse 5, it kind of gives us more insight. It says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Some have interpreted that to have just many children, right? Um, and it could mean that, but I don't think that's the main takeaway from this song. But blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, because he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We have a literal lot of kids, children, provide a kind of defense and security for the family. How is that so? I'm being able to understand what enemies in the gate means, right? The gate. The gate was a public place in the city where commerce and the court was commonly held, right? So in other words, it was just a location where business deals were made and justice was dealt out. So do you remember, there's, there's a book, the book of Ruth in the Bible. Remember how uh, Boaz wants to kind of secure that that, that, uh, uh, the marriage to, to Ruth, he goes to the city gates and then he deals with kind of, I guess, like some kind of distant cousin. And then, you know, they do the weird thing. They exchange like sandals and, you know, they're like, all right, let's make a deal. I'm going to marry Ruth and you're going to have a piece of property or you get to, all right, keep these, great. Right? So there's a business kind of illegal dealing that happened at the city, at the city gate. So that's an idea of what happens at the gate. If you remember, Solomon's father David had another son, Absalom. And Absalom, he went to the city's gate. And then he sat there making judgment calls. And he kind of gained the influence from the people to kind of do a coup and usurp the throne from his father. So that's what happened at the gate. Commerce and court. But that doesn't mean everything was good and square. That means there were also unfair deals being done at the gate. There was injustice. Those accusations and adversity that happen at the gate. So what the psalm is saying is that, yes, we will face adversity. We will face challenges. We will face maybe injustice and difficulties in life. Even in a public way. In a way that could put us to shame. The children, as we raise them righteously, children will have our backs. Children, when they grow up, at some point, they'll be grown and they will have your back. They will help advocate and defend the family. So the way God keeps you secure, that you may rest in him, is by giving us children. Now, there are some truths about children here. Many of us, you are in a position where you are now, these children, the arrows, you're now caring for your own parents. Many of us are now in that position, in that role now in your life. You're caring for your parents. Let's trust that God is keeping your parents. Some of us have children of our own. Your hands and your thoughts are just filled with concern with trying to raise your children, even after they've technically left the home. The Lord keeps your children. All those of us, we don't have children or won't have children. 
And the Lord keeps you even as you keep others. See, a, a, a greater truth is, as we're reading this, I wonder how we're kind of taking this in just as parents or actually even before all that. All of us, regardless of relationship status or family background, all of us are children first. We're all children no matter what. We're someone's child. We belong to somebody. All of us are children first. So all of us are a gift from the Lord or from the Lord and his image. And we can know that actually as all of us are children, this notion of family that God helps to cure us by providing us a family, it gets actually expanded. There's a greater kind of application here. See, in the New Testament, we see this idea of family really being expanded and broadened in the church. In this context, in this setting, in the Psalms, when they were singing in the Old Testament times, it really meant this is my kin, this is my family, this is my clan, this is my tribe. Same last name, same ancestor. That's who we stick with, right? But that, that idea of family was expanded and broadened in the New Testament church. And this was a, this was a crazy idea at the time. Do you remember Jesus? He says this in Mark, and he says, who, who is my brother and brother and my, my sisters? Whoever does the will of God, whoever listens to God and obeys him, here is my mother, my brother, my sister. Right? He says, anyone who actually obeys the Lord is now like family. And Jesus says that. Later on, Paul teaches the same thing through Timothy to the church. And he teaches that just like you care for your own biological family, so in the church too, consider yourselves as family and take care of, take care of one another just like you would your own family. Consider one another, your family. He says, encourage an older man as like your father, older woman as your mother, younger men as your brother, younger woman as your daughter, as your sister. In other places, he, he ref, they refer to each other as like son or daughter in Christ. And so this vision of the family is really expanded and includes much more and I think what the Israelites originally were used to. And the point is this, that we're not alone. That is the main way that God keeps us secure. We're not alone because God is with us, and practically, he gives us a family to belong to. Even with our many different family backgrounds and situations, in Christ, we have a spiritual family. That means this church family is a gift from the Lord. In our church, we can be rest assured that you're not alone. You are not alone. God keeps us secure by granting us a spiritual family to belong to, to journey together with, to go through really challenging times of uncertainty with, we're not alone in any of that. God keeps you secure. As I close, uh, there's, a, there's a problem with this song. There's a problem. You look at the uh, author of Solomon. Solomon was the guy who wrote this psalm to instruct the people of God. And it kind of plays like, like a wisdom psalm. He was famous for his wisdom. 
God asked a young Solomon, who would eventually become king, what, what can I give to you, riches or fame? And Solomon wisely said, wisdom, my lord. And it's like, oh, that was such a wise answer. Here's wisdom, fame, and riches. And so that's how Solomon, that's what he was known for, right? But sadly, the problem here is that Solomon's own life did not really reflect these truths, the very things that he wrote about. Solomon did build and labor to build a house for the Lord, a temple. But through his promiscuity and sexual immorality, he compromised his worship to God. He started to worship other idols and gods later in his life, and he led others astray. The whole nation, in fact. Though he had many concubines and wives, hundreds, we actually only know of one son. There wasn't a quiver full of children in Solomon's life, as far as we know. There's just mention of one son. And even then, that child followed in his father's footsteps and was led astray and did not worship the Lord. So there's a problem here. This is not a good legacy for Solomon. As he's writing these things, these words do not necessarily ring true of him. And I think that may, as we look at Solomon's life, it describes our lives too, doesn't it? We too, despite our best efforts, even as we might try to trust God day to day, we too fall short. We too have given in to temptation and sin and compromise our worship. We too have struggled with integrity and diligence in our work. We too struggle with messy families and home life. Yet the God who is in charge of all history worked out his salvation through all of this. I don't think Solomon even knew or could have foreseen it, but our God was faithful to bring about redemption and salvation in this crazy, mixed-up family and nation. And he speaks into his people's broken lives, words of hope, just as we need to hear that too. See, years later after the psalm was written, years later after Solomon's reign, it got so bad that the people were actually kicked out of their land, and they were in exile. They were far from home. The, once, the house that they were ascending up to and singing the song as they're preparing for the song of ascent was no more. That temple was burned and gone. That city that they were, the holy city that they were living in, the land of Canaan, the promised land, they were no longer there. They were so discouraged that actually they said, Why, what's the point of even raising a family? There's no point. What's the point of even having kids? It's too expensive. It's too much of a struggle. Things are kind of getting in the way. There's just no point. And that's where they were. And years later, God sees this, and he spoke into that. There's a prophet named Jeremiah, and he, and he, and he reads this, and, and, he, and he says this through Jeremiah. You might know this first. It's pretty common. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil to give you a future and a hope. God sees the brokenness of his people. 
And he speaks into the lives of his people right then and there. Broken people like you and me. See, God is working for our good. God keeps us. He secures our future. He keeps our lives and our work is secure in his hands. So we can rest in God in every aspect of life. So how can we respond to that? Knowing that God is the one who keeps us. Even as we struggle through this life. Even as we're eating away at that bread of anxious toil. I think one way we can is we can foster an eternal God-centered perspective. We can foster that. Meaning, I've got to nurture it regularly. We foster an eternal God-centered perspective. We're trying to get, instead of an anxiety that says, it's all up to me, and even if and when we fall short, we get crushed because, like, wait a minute. If it was all up to me and it didn't work out, then what? And instead of leaving ourselves there, we train our minds. We foster an eternal God-centered perspective to look up to the Lord. A perspective that allows us to look up and notice that God is good, that God is God, and God cares for us. I printed out these, uh, well, Sarah did actually. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, these, I don't know if you, everyone received it, but on the way in, if you took a bulletin, if you didn't receive it, it's okay. There's more on the welcoming table. Little cards, prayer cards. And um, just simple prayers to kind of start off the day and end the day. Um, that just kind of helps foster this perspective. In fact, uh, we could kind of read it together. Uh, it's on the screen. Even if you don't have the card, you can read this. And let's close in this way as a church. As a church, we just declared these songs of trying to trust in the Lord. Also know that it's a struggle. And yet we're trusting the Lord that he is mighty to save. He redeems. He is faithful to keep us secure. That we can truly rest in him. So can we pray this together? Um, you know, both prayers are out there. So to begin the day, this is an example of how we can begin the day with prayer. Just placing our trust in him. So let's start, and let's actually pray this together, starting with Lord of all. Ready? Lord of all, I belong to you, my life and every part of it. The work ahead of me today, I commit to you. The people in my care are in your perfect care. Help me look to you when I get anxious. You, who gave up your own son Jesus for us all, will provide all we need. I need you today. Amen. Just a simple way that you can kind of take probably 15 seconds to read. Put it on the dashboard of your car, maybe bathroom mirror, nightstand, something. They could refer to. And as you end the night, as you end the night, after a long, hard day of just toil, this is how we could end the night in trusting our God. Ready? Father, today has ended. I confess I wrestled with anxious thoughts about my life, situations outside of my control, and those in my care. All this day, your hand has held me and my family. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. I trust you will continue to work and provide as I rest. Amen. Can I invite us to uh, just pray together?
and bow our heads. Before I close us in prayer, um, I invite us just to take a, a short moment uh, to respond personally. Can we just take a brief moment here and to pray silently to the Lord and think about your own life situation? What might you be anxious about in your work? What are you anxious about in what's happening in our city? What are you anxious about in your home life? What are you losing sleep over? Let's acknowledge that to the Lord. Let's be still before him. And just confess that. Lord, I'm feeling anxious about these things. But Lord, I trust that you're keeping me. I can rest in you. So can we just take just a brief moment? 15 seconds just to pray that, just for yourself. And let's do that together and I'll, I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, you alone are the good and holy God. May your kingdom of goodness and rest and plenty come. Let your perfect will be done here in our present lives on this earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, good bread, enough for this day. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors, leading us to make peace in our homes and cities. Lead us not into temptation, but rescue us from evil. We belong to you, Father. Thank you for calling us beloved in Christ. This week ahead, we commit to you. And as you invite us to rest in you, so in you we rest. Amen.